Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. If you're here this morning and you're Australian born, as quite a number of us are, then excuse the expression, but we really are a pack of whingers, aren't we? I was mistaken. I thought it was actually an Australianism, but it's not according to the Oxford Dictionary. It is British English. A whinger is a person who complains a lot in an annoying way. And we do. Come on, admit it. We complain about the weather. It's 31, too hot. It's 18, too cold. It's 24, just right. But did you hear what it's going to be tomorrow? We complain about the government. We complain about the opposition. We complain there's nothing on nothing good on TV, even less on Netflix. Well, I complain about that anyway. Uh, we complain about interest rates going up. But of course, when interest rates are down, we complain how little we're getting on our investment account. We complain about our families. We complain about our friends, if we still have any. We complain about our neighbours. We complain about our boss. We complain about our colleagues. We complain about our health. And if we're Christians, we complain about our church. That this was changed. That that was changed. That nothing ever changes. That the sermon was too long. That the coffee was too strong. The sound from the PA was all wrong. And we complain to anyone who listen. Or even those who don't want to. It is the Australian way. Have a good whinge. Of course, if you're British, you're worse. Because in the Australian vernacular, those two words have always gone together, haven't they? Whinging pomps. Maybe, though, before I get started on Indonesians or Indians or Sri Lankans or the Irish or the Italians, let me just defend all of us equally and say, I guess, the reality is it's actually a feature of being human and maybe related to that unpopular biblical word, sin, which simply means putting self in the centre of everything and then complaining, of course, when things fail to rotate properly around you as the universal centre of gravitation. As we come to the end this morning of this letter from James to first century Christians who are genuinely doing it tough, James draws together a number of threads. And he says, I know it's tough, but in the face of persecution and injustice, don't whinge about it. Be patient. In the face of people who treat you poorly, as they will, don't grumble, but persevere. In the face of suffering and sickness, which will come, don't despair, but pray. And when things are going well, don't boast about it and pat yourself on the back but praise God instead. 
Here's the key verse in the section that says that and gives a hint as to why as well, which we'll circle round to at the end. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Australian, Pom, New Zealander, whatever, no whinging, no grumbling. Verse 12, no cursing or swearing about it either. But instead, and here is the challenge, be patient. It is interesting, isn't it, as things over the years have got faster and more efficient, we seem to get less and less patient. Two minutes in the microwave? That is outrageous. They said they were instant noodles. A farmer, on the other hand, knows how to wait. See how the farmer waits, says James, for the seasons to roll around, for the rains to come, for the drought to stop. You'll see his words from verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. It's a great example, isn't it? And since the day James wrote these words, nothing has changed. In the middle of the Queensland drought four years ago, Channel 9 interviewed Karen Huskinson, who runs Wattledown Station in Queensland. Karen said, we've only had four mils of rain in the last two years. Everything is brown. And the interviewer said, how do you find the strength to keep going day after day? And Karen says, well, I just say every morning, you get up, you put your big girl pants on, and you just keep going. Every day up at 4am to feed 3,000 sheep through seven years of drought. Just keep going. James says, be patient like that instead of grumbling. He says, take Job as an example. You know, Job, famous in the Old Testament, as the guy who loses everything but keeps trusting God patiently. There's another word James used when he uses when he talks about Job. He says he is steadfast, which means solid. Uh, literally in, in the Greek, it's a compound word. When you, when you dissect the compound word, it means remain under load like the pillar of a building, holding up under pressure. Which, again, if you've been here regularly, you'll remember through the letter is something the first readers of James have experienced firsthand. These were almost his opening words back in chapter 1. He said, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect he says that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing or this one chapter 1 verse 12 
Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, see, as the letter closes, circling back to that same idea. Patiently persevere like the farmer. Be steadfast like Job. Even if everything is swept away around you. Now, in the old days, of course, preachers used to love alliteration. Three points, all starting with the same letter. Got to say, that's not quite my style. It went out of fashion around 1972. Although, in this case, it's very hard to avoid. See, James moves from patience and perseverance to prayer. P, P, P. As the key antidotes to grumbling in the face of hard times. So take a look at his words in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Instead of wasting your words grumbling and complaining, pray. Now it's a thought he expands in verse 14 to the, to the very common form of suffering that is sickness. Although the original Greek has stenao, more literally means weakness and might even be just when you're feeling down, struggling. So is anyone among you sick or, or weak or worn? Let him call for the elders of the church, says James, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What to do, says James, as well as calling the doctor, is to call for the elders of the church and ask them to pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, now friends, this few sentences, they're oddly challenging in a number of ways, aren't they? But let me start with the obvious. If you are unwell and your elder visits, and one of the great benefits of formal membership at Scots is that you are allocated an elder. If you're unwell and your elder visits, make sure you ask for prayer. Make sure your elder prays with you. Now look, we've got the advantage here at Scots of ministers who'll do that as well. A leader whose dedicated role is to do that and she loves doing that. But make sure you are asking and expecting it of your elders. And if you're an elder and you're not praying with your people as you visit, you really should take this on board. And if you're not comfortable doing that, let's work out why. Now, anointing with oil. That's curious too. That's maybe a little bit cultural. Uh, you'll see in verse 15 in a moment that it is actually the prayer that's the main thing. But it's interesting too to ask the question, what's the anointing with oil all about? And there are lots of thoughts about that. That it was a, a Jewish custom. That it was medicated oil. It's like he's saying, pray and take your medicine as well. Another thought, that it was a sign of celebration. So splash it on and get your spirits up. Here's what I really like. That anointing with oil 
as we'll see with Charles in the coronation in May, is an ancient sign of kingship and honour. So do it as a reminder that no matter how frail and discouraged you're feeling, we as followers of Jesus are invited into royalty with him in our suffering. And most especially at at the point of death, which is where the Roman Catholic idea of extreme unction came from. That it's not an ending, but a new beginning. And you're honoured. But here's the main point, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, of course, those are words that raise questions as well, aren't they? Like the little hit of a suggestion, is sickness a result of sin? And like the question, is James thinking that every prayer of faith for someone sick is going to heal them? And if you're not healed, perhaps then your elders just didn't pray with enough faith. Which would make you very selective about which church you went to and which elder came to visit you, wouldn't it? Now friends, I've got some good news and some bad news at this point. Here's the good news. At times I've seen remarkable answers to prayer for healing. Where God has clearly answered in most unexpected ways. And I've seen other times when whole churches have been praying and illness relentlessly progresses. Which seems, at first, like bad news. And James, I'm absolutely sure, saw the same thing. James knew that for all of us, at some point, this life comes to an end, that God's appointed time no matter how faithful and fervent the prayers. So what's his point? Can I step you back for just a moment and ask you to take a look at the whole passage again and see how James has framed it and ask the question, what is the actual drought that he's talking about that calls for our patient endurance? What is it that we are so to so patiently wait for? What is it that's going to keep us going? Keep us from grumbling, keep us gracious with one another, even when it's tough. Can you see the answer in verse 7? Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See, friends, maybe the resolution for our hard times, even our sickness, isn't just a quick fix now that lasts a few years, but something much bigger. When everything is going to be put right, every injustice, every struggle, every ache and pain. Now, it's the same again in verse 8. Did you notice? You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That is the rain we're waiting for. 
which is also the reason that we don't grumble at each other or judge one another or curse. Exactly as we saw a few weeks back in chapter 4, the single biggest reason we don't judge one another, the single biggest reason we don't live life as a massive retribution campaign, paying back, paying back, getting even, getting even, is that the Christian faith has always held that there is final justice coming at the end where God's justice and mercy perfectly meet and are perfectly balanced and everything we might rightly want to whinge about now will turn to celebration instead. Which brings us back then to that prayer of faith and what it is that we can really and solidly look forward to in our times of trial. You may not be persuaded about this idea of being saved. Who needs it anyway? It kind of smacks a little bit of American fundamentalists or a Billy Graham crusade. But it is a word that James uses five times through his letter. The implanted word, he said earlier, which is able to save your souls. What good is it if a man says he has faith, says James, but doesn't have works to match? Can that faith save him? Or this one. We'll put it on the screen. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your name? He'll use the word save again in the very last verse of his letter. And he's talking, I think, at every point about the saving judge, about the prospect of nothing but mercy on the last day for those who have remained loyal to Jesus. He's talking at every point about God's ultimate forgiveness and grace and restoration which surely you see if you're sick and facing an uncertain future, is something you would be delighted to be reminded of and assured of as your elder comes and prays. See the words again. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise you up, which it is precisely and exactly the, the word used over and over and over again through the New Testament of the raising up of Jesus and our own resurrection hope. To which you might say, well, I'd rather just get better now. And James would maybe say, better yet, that you know that you can stand again, raised up before the Lord Jesus on that final day, in the sure and certain knowledge that your sins have been forgiven. See those key words, saved, raised, forgiven. And again, just notice if there's no elder around, or you're not a formal member, or if you are and your elder's been a bit tardy, when it comes to prayer, the elder is not actually the big deal. Because verse 16 says we can simply just pray for one another. Look at the words. Therefore confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healed either now or on that final day when the rain comes. Now notice it's the same point with Elijah, the final Old Testament example. You don't have to be anyone special, James says. He was just an ordinary person like the rest of us. His prayers were powerfully answered. Prayers for rain brings fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, verse 17. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. Heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruit. That fruit being again the coming of the Lord to bring about final justice, pushing aside oppression, putting an end to pain, putting right every wrong. That justice that frees us from the need to complain or get even or curse even now and calls us to keep waiting patiently because the judge is at the door. His kingdom come. We prayed it earlier. We pray it every week. Do we mean it? Friends, that is where we keep our eyes. That's the day we pray God will hasten. That's the sure hope we have when things are grim. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Which is why James wants us to keep encouraging one another to keep on keeping on. Wants us to keep an eye out for one another, he says in his last few lines when we're inclined to just give up and wander off. Because with the promise of that final fruit of forgiveness, when the, when the drought breaks and the rain finally comes, what a shame it will be if you've given up just short of the mark. James says, help one another keep going. Friends, that's why we gather week by week. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a good thing. Multitude of sins, yours and mine forgiven and covered, and the long-awaited spring rains. Folks, that is the final word from James. It's a letter that's been full of vivid word pictures and absolutely practical encouragement. Will you, instead of grumbling, instead of whinging, instead of backstabbing and bickering and bitterness, instead of being double-minded, instead of being full of empty words and no practical action, Instead of cultivating the rich and ignoring the poor, will you be a person of real and living loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ? And so persevere, be patient, and pray. There is just one more P that I skipped. It's back in verse 13, and that is praise. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. 
patiently persevere, pray, and sing praises. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.